The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening to you all, and uh, let me reiterate uh, the uh, welcome that you've already received, and also thank uh, uh, Derek and uh, Randy for their very gracious and humbling introductions uh, this evening. Uh, it's great that you have uh, taken the time to be here. Uh, it uh, costs both a little bit of money and it costs a little bit of time, uh, but I hope and pray that you will find at the end of this weekend that it was time uh, and money well spent in dealing with this critical issue. Now, my purpose uh, this evening, especially as we open the conference, is really to set up, try and set up for you why this uh, issue is so important, and also, in a sense, draw the uh, battle lines for you. That is to help us understand really what is at stake. Uh, You will quickly discover that this conference this weekend is not actually about uh, sprucing up your marriage. As valuable and as important as that is, this is not going to be a weekend of top tips for married couples and so on. It's not about uh, uh, sharpening uh, motherhood and fatherhood specifically as important and as critical as conferences about that are, and they are important. That's not the focus of this conference. We are trying to look this weekend at the big picture. Why does this issue matter so much, and how is it impacting uh, our culture today? And there's a diversity of speakers throughout the weekend who will be touching on a number of different critical issues that are relevant uh, to our cultural moment. So turn with me if you would. We're going to begin with the Word of God. If you have a Bible, if not, you can just listen. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm beginning in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, reading from verse 15 through into chapter 4, verse 6. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, 
No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, that each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I've read a lengthy passage there because Paul says so many crucial things there about the nature of the marriage covenant and how the center of the marriage covenant, the center of the biblical family is God Himself. He is the Father. In fact, a few verses earlier in Ephesians 3.14, we read, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That is defined. When you name something, you define it. And God is the one who defines the nature and character of the family and His covenant with us and the covenant that is made in marriage. At the very heart of the question of the family today, and we know as Canadians that the family is right, has been at the heart of Canadian politics for a number of years uh, in terms of what it is, what constitutes a family, that lordship is at the heart of understanding the nature of the family and its calling. Now, as Christians, by creation and redemption, Jesus Christ is Lord and sovereign over everything, and the Christian is called to complete allegiance to Jesus Christ. In fact, when you uh, open up one of the member verses I had to learn as a boy, Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Actually, that statement of St. Peter there in Acts 4 was a direct rebuttal of a claim made at that time by the Roman emperor who had said, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved than the name of Caesar. And that was Peter's response, that there is only one Lord, there is only one source of definition and lordship, and that is Jesus Christ. And that question, friends, that was with the Apostle Paul was there right there for the early church in the first centuries of the church's life. The question of lordship is right here with us again today in the modern age, in the modern era. Our answer, of course, to the question of who is Lord, who defines life and meaning and truth and the family is the God of Scripture, the God of the covenant. Now, I've used that word covenant a couple of times, but the doctrine of covenant is fundamental and basic to all of Scripture. In fact, the Bible is a covenant book. 
That is, it's the text of God's treaty, God's agreement with us. It tells us about the nature of our relationship and the terms of that relationship. They are laid out clearly for us in the Bible. Now, I know that most modern evangelicals, and I've been amongst them, I am still amongst modern evangelicals. I am a modern evangelical, although I probably belong in a different century, but you know what I mean. I was born in this era are accustomed to thinking of Scripture as really a collection of devotional readings to help me with my personal life. Now, Scripture does, of course, perform the function for us practically of being a collection of readings that we read systematically or less systematically, as the case may be, uh, to help us in our daily lives. But it is not the equivalent of a crystal ball where we just think, oh, I just need my word for the day, and we flip it open and read a couple of verses and leave it at that. The Bible is God's treaty. It's His covenant with us, and in it, He defines the nature of our relationship. And when, as in our own time, the doctrine of the covenant is de-emphasized, and it has been extremely de-emphasized by modern evangelicals, covenantal institutions like the family, suffer decline as well. When we lose an understanding of covenant, covenantal institutions start to lose their cohesion. They start to lose their fundamental character. We see that today in the marriage relationship, for example. We'll touch on that in a moment. Now, from the very beginning of history, Scripture defines the family as first and foremost a covenant community. The family is not actually defined by blood. It's defined by covenant. In fact, very quickly, blood marriages uh, were forbidden. The covenant... Is not, at, is, is not subservient to a blood relationship. In fact, we read quite the contrary in Scripture. In Malachi 2.14, this is what we read, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And that word there, covenant, bereth, is exactly the same word we read in Scripture in the Old Testament for God's covenant with man. And we read of the cementing of that first covenant relationship there in Genesis chapter 2. We're not going to read it for time's sake, verses 18 through 25, where all the animals are named by Adam, you will recall, and he creates Eve from Adam's side and they are brought into covenantal union, for which cause a man shall leave to cleave to his wife, and a new covenantal unit is formed at that point. A new unit, a new covenantal agreement is formed. You've still got blood relations, but there is a new unit that is then created. God's creation then of the first marriage also distinguished marriage from creation itself. You think, well, what kind of a gobbledygook point is that? Uh, gobbledygook, it's a good word. Add it to your vocabulary. 
and use it in conversation. It needs a revival, that one. How is, uh, why is such a statement important? Well, in pagan antiquity, and what I'm trying to do at the moment is outline the nature of the family covenant and how it contrasts with other views, is that in antiquity, in pagan faith, in pagan cosmologies, the idea of creation was bound up very often with the marriage of one God to another God, and the people of the earth were the offspring of the gods, or a God married a human being, and the uh, progeny became the people who populated the earth. This is typical in pagan cosmology. And what that results in, because uh, to worship God or gods is then bound up with family ancestry, what do you get? Worship of the family. Worship of uh, ancestors, ancestral worship, which was the mainstay of pagan uh, religion. In the biblical view, whilst the family is God's basic unit and original institution, for example, one can argue that both the state and the church were necessitated by the fall in terms of their history, in terms of earth history, they are uh, consequences of the fall, even though the church was in the mind of God. I know that there are those who would argue that the church begins with Adam. I think it's really with Abel, but we won't. that's not an argument that we need to have. The point is, is that the covenant here uh, that uh, is established between a man and a woman distinguishes marriage from creation itself. And so whilst the family is important as a unit and God's original institution, it is not absolute and it is not the center of society. Now, some modern Christians, when thinking about the family, do make that mistake. God is the center. Only God is absolute. The family must always be relative to God and His requirements. God alone is the absolute center, and the family and its covenantal health depends upon obedience to God. And so the biblical view of the family's authority means that the family, unlike the pagan family, has checks and balances in the church and in the state. They're necessary to prevent the corruption of the family's sphere of authority. For example, when you uh, look back into history, what you see uh, predominantly, even in Europe, is the clan mentality before the spread of Christianity. The clan mentality in various forms of paganism is a context where the family is absolutized and tyranny is the result. That is, the family is not made relative to God, it's made absolute, the center of everything. The father actually had power of life and death over the child in the Roman family, for example. You can absolutize any of these institutions. The church was absolutized in the, the Roman church was absolutized in the medieval period. What happened? Well, the church, uh, people were told that there is really no salvation outside of the church the source of salvation, the means of salvation is the church through the vicar of Christ and so forth. So you had the absolutizing of the church and tyranny again was the result. And then typically again in pagan culture, the absolutizing of the state, statism, both ancient and modern, where the state becomes the, the locus of divinity. So who was worshipped there? The emperor in Rome, for example, was worshipped as a god. 
And the state's word was absolute. That's the greatest threat in our day, I believe, statism. But nonetheless, forms of tribalism and clan mentalities, we would call them in our day mafia, uh, uh, gang lords, and so on and so forth. We are seeing the proliferation of clan mentality again uh, in our own time, where blood is more important than the Word of God. Amazing how many of these mafioso types can be loving parents in the one context and then killing people in another. Blood is seen as more important than God and law. In fact, one commentator, Ray Sutton, points out the difference between the pagan and biblical view of the family. He says this. Listen closely. It's not on PowerPoint. You can get the recording. The clans were the final authority about everything, even to the point of executing one of its own members should he be found guilty of some capital or other or rather familial offense. The church attacked this clan view. It taught that the family can only draw true life from the family of God. Build God's family and God will save man's family. It is important, however, that the biblical hierarchy of the family be theoretically and historically distinguished from the pagan patriarchal or clan family system. The clan family simply cannot compete with the biblical covenantal family. The biblical family order is supposed to replace clans and patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are frequently referred to as patriarchs. Biblical patriarchs, yes. Patriarchs of a clan system, no. When Abraham sent Ishmael away, he broke from Ishmael legally. That is, he was disinherited. Ishmael no longer had to take orders from Abraham. The patriarchs in the Bible were not patriarchs in the sense of men who ruled in a single pyramid of families beneath them. The sons and daughters-in-law were not expected to live in their father's house or even nearby. You might be relieved to hear that. I don't know. But the point he's making is a clear one. The system of Scripture is not a clan mentality, uh, even in the uh, Older Testament. The check upon the clan mentality became in Europe the church court, and Christianity, as it spread through Europe, people, families, rather than being disinherited or dispossessed or even being executed by their own parents, could appeal to the church courts. And the church could arbitrate the decision of a father in a, in a clan situation. In fact, God's law requires, uh, requires such loyalty to Him before blood loyalty that it even uh, requires of us to testify against our own delinquent children. The church court broke then the feuding clan system of Europe. And believe you me, when uh, Christianity arrived in Britain uh, and went up to Scotland and found the barbarians there as well as in England and so forth, and the clan system, it needed breaking. And it was the Christian faith... Uh, that did it. So the Christian biblical family replaced that system until now in the modern era when we have a revived statist and anarchistic assault upon the family. It is relevant, of course, because there are uh, uh, parts of Europe, Eastern Europe today, Africa and Asia, that are still very much clan systems. And those clan systems move into Toronto. And so you have, for example, in uh, a number of uh, Eastern cultures, problems f uh, faced by uh, 
in Canada today of honor killings, for example, where a father takes it upon himself to execute his daughter if he disapproves of a relationship that she's in. The early origins of the Christian social order then are very interesting. That's the covenantal nature of the family, but the early origins of why marriage has been historically regarded and reverenced as it has been in Western culture. Why is that? Well, if you went through school in the way that I did, for about a century and a half now, or almost a century and a half, various forms of evolutionism have taught generations of Western people that the family is merely a primitive stage in the evolutionary process, something that needs to be transcended and possibly abandoned for more developed or more natural forms of societal organization. That's one of the things that I heard uh, perpetually uh, throughout my school years. This should make space, people think, as you change the understanding of the family, that should make space for much greater sexual liberty. In fact, in a few months, within a few months after the death of Karl Marx, Engels wrote, and I quote, it is a peculiar fact that with every great revolutionary movement, the question of free love comes to the foreground. End quote. Engels' work, the, and I, uh, his book, The Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State in 1884, which he claimed represented Marx as well, involved offering a historical account of the family's origin from this primitive evolutionary past mixed in with economic forces. And Marx himself picked up his anti-family agenda in the 1840s in Paris in France, where he was exposed to the thinking of, amongst others, the idealist uh, uh, socialist Charles Fourier, who'd been writing on the subject of the family for some time. And uh, the historian Richard Weikart observes this, and listen closely, friends. Fourier advocated the replacement of monogamous marriage with a system allowing much greater latitude for sexual passions, since he believed that monogamy was an institution contrary to human nature and was thus an impediment to human happiness. He also proposed that children be raised communally so society would be one big, harmonious family. Idealistic nonsense, of course, but this is what was being taught in the early part of the 19th century by these people. So the contemporary hostility to the family that we see in our time, where it's considered regressive in some way or repressive, is nothing uh, new. More recently, for example, the eugenics movement of the last century, led by some leading feminists in North America, often advocated the total abolition of the family. The hostility to the family is led, of course, on this slippery slope we find ourselves on socially. The demographic decline of the West is a well-known fact, and if you're here tomorrow, I would really encourage you during the lunch hour to watch the documentary we're going to show called Demographic Winter, which deals with that. Many uh, modern radical feminists still appeal to Karl Marx and Engels and other 19th century socialists in portraying the biblical family as a form of slavery, slavery for women and slavery for children. And yet the interesting thing is that the Christian family 
the biblical family burst onto the Western scene as a liberating force, quite the contrary of enslavement. The pagan family, as we've already mentioned, was past bound in ancestor worship. The father in the Roman Empire had the power of life and death over the child. He could disinherit his wife at will. But under Scripture, under biblical law, the wife was a co-heir with the husband and could both inherit and rule the estate after his death. This is why in getting married in the Old Testament period, a man would at the same time legally adopt his wife as his sister so that she could be a co-heir of the inheritance. These were almost uh, separate. They may have become conjoined later. Uh, uh, Ceremonies where a man who got married also adopted his wife as his sister so that she could be the co-inheritor of everything. Now, this will shed some light for you on a passage that may have troubled you in the past in Genesis 20, where Abraham tells Abimelech, king of Egypt, that Sarah is his sister. And you might have thought, well, he was just lying. Sarah was his sister legally as well, so that she could be the co-inheritor of everything. We see this again in Genesis 24 in the story of Isaac and in the Song of Solomon. And it's the reason today why a wife usually still takes the man's name. My wife, when she uh, married me, uh, took my family name so that she legally inherits everything. More before any, anybody else. It's an interesting fact, isn't it? Well, at least it was to me. Proverbs 31 also deals with the godly woman as wife, mother, businesswoman, investor, manager, and so forth. This was quite common for women in the Puritan period. This whole idea that Christianity has been repressive to women and prevented them from working and so on is utter nonsense. It was never that way. It wasn't that way in Scripture. It wasn't that way in the New Testament. In fact, it wasn't until the Enlightenment where women were viewed by rationalistic philosophers as somehow uh, less uh, intelligent and less reasoning, less capable than men, where you have the China doll woman of the Victorian age. Ancestor worship did not honor the living family, but it created fear concerning the ancestors, keeping the family past bound and producing stagnation. There was no emphasis on the future. But when this vision of the family burst onto the West, it changed everything. Now, the story of the Christian revolution, the family revolution, uh, to me is an absolutely fascinating one. I'm going to sketch it really briefly for you because it's centered around a a wonderful story about a woman called Theodora. From the first time I read this, it's so stuck with me, I've often cited it. She was born in the early 6th century. Her father was an animal trainer in the circus, basically, in the Roman arena. And when he died, his daughters were still young. They were 6, 8, and 10. Theodora was just 8 years old. And as was typical in that time, under Roman law, there was no provision for children. And so after the father's death, they were sold into prostitution, all three of them. By her teens, Theodora was a high-priced prostitute, and she accompanied a businessman into North Africa on a business trip. 
He became angry and upset with her, and he actually abandoned her, and she became seriously ill. And that was when a Christian presbyter and his family took this young woman in and took responsibility for her nursing care and began to teach this young girl the Scriptures. She wasn't converted straight away, but within a year she was back in the capital of the empire and she was thinking about the faith. And obviously the Holy Spirit was at work within her. During that time, she became acquainted with a young lawyer who was the nephew of a very powerful general in the Roman armies. And these two young ones, Theodora and the nephew of this Roman general, fell in love and they got married. And in a most remarkable turn of events, the Roman emperor died childless. And what he was afraid about was that the fact that there was no succession through, a, through a, a child, that the empire could be thrown into civil war and conflict. So he made his old general Justin the emperor of Rome. He died very quickly, and his only living heir was his nephew, Justinian, this young lawyer, who became the emperor. And consequently, Theodora, a girl sold into slavery at the age of eight, became in her twenties the empress of the empire, and by this time a devout Christian. Well, Justinian, another Christian, her husband, called for the recodification of Roman law, and Theodora was basically chief advisor. She took a leading role in this, and she ensured that the Justinian Code, as it's been, become known in history, took account of and applied Scripture to this codification, and her primary concern was with family law. You can understand why, as a girl who after the death of her father was sold into prostitution. Her primary concern was with family law, and so understanding that prior to this the family had no real status, if a man died it was very common for the family to be tossed out into the street. He might have made a contract with a friend, a mistress, a concubine, in which all his possessions were alienated and the children uh, abandoned and sometimes illegitimate uh, children receiving the inheritance. Well, the Empress Theodora ensured as a matter of law, sexual activity outside of marriage was prohibited by law, and that only heirs to and owners of the, only the heirs to the property and owners of the property could inherit it and would be the legitimate heirs of the parent's uh, estate. And this stopped immediately countless families from being uh, dispossessed. This was, of course, according to the law given uh, to Moses. And this produced one of the most incredible legal revolutions in all of history. It was the Justinian Code that informed uh, European early law codes, even prior to the Papal Revolution in the 12th century, and then informed even the thinking of the Reformers themselves. So in light of that, you can see that what, was, what is going on in society today in the West... And it's been going on, this battle has been going on for about 250 years. Via education and our courts and all the social engineering and so forth is actually an effort to undo everything that the Empress Theodora did. 
It's nearly impossible to find reference to her in most school or college texts, and if you do read about her, most of what is said is slanderous. They don't like her. What was the nature of this revolution? Well, the central fact, sexual activity, unlike the pagan practices of concubinage, temple prostitution, homosexuality, and so forth, this instead was restricted. Sexual activity between a man and a woman was restricted to marriage, and marriage and sex were identified and made the standard for men and nations. We're now trying to undo that. So it was through Theodora that the monogamous marriage became basic to the Western world. That means, friends, that the success of Bill C-38 in this country, which you're all familiar with, legalizing, endorsing, and celebrating homosexual marriage, represents a legal and social revolution the like of which we have not seen in 1,500 years. That's the significance of it, in case any of us were sleeping through that revolution. It is a revolution of sorts. Why is this relevant tonight? You're thinking, gosh, it's Friday night, this is heavy stuff. Well, it's relevant because the Christian believes that the Word of God is relevant to every single area of life, all of it, that God claims all of it, and that when we move against what God has said to us, when we work against God's purposes, well, destruction is the end result. Christ calls us to life in all its fullness through His atoning death and His regenerating work. And that life includes understanding the true character and nature of marriage. Salvation in the Latin root means wholeness, wholeness, wholeness in every aspect of our lives. Christ has come not simply to redeem your soul, but to remake every aspect of our lives in terms of His will and purpose, the totality of our person, to reconcile all things to Himself. So, Scripture's promise to the family is that this covenant is for you, your children, your children's children, and all those whom the Lord our God shall call. And so, if we're to give our children a future, which is what this conference is really about, we have to face the attack upon the family that is taking place in our time, and in thought, word, and deed, manifest, exemplify in our lives, and defend a biblical view of the family. And if we're going to do that, we first have to understand what's happened. And part of what this conference is about is helping us truly understand what has happened and have a historical appreciation for what's happened. So that's the history, that's the background. What about the actual nature of the social revolution then that's taken place? Well, G.K. Chesterton held that if you abandon the God, the greatest threat to freedom, he says, is that the government, the government becomes the de facto God. If you abandon the God, the government becomes the de facto God. I think he's right. Michael Wagner, in his book, Standing on Guard for Thee, he's a political scientist and social commentator, analyzes something of the social revolution in Canada and its attack on the family. 
And he notes this. He says, those who want the government to be the supreme power in society, unrivaled by other institutions, view the family as an obstacle to state power, end quote. The leading uh, social critic, William Gardner, who's going to be here tomorrow. Who's heard of William Gardner? Many of you. He's a Canadian social critic. It's important, I think, to be familiar with his work. He'll be speaking tomorrow. He says this, In our Western civilization, there is an inherent and deadly conflict between statism and the whole idea of the private family, end quote. In one of his most insightful statements about the centrality of the family for a free, healthy, and viable social order, this is what he says, and I quote again, listen carefully, the family is an institution, as an institution, is at the heart of an entire social order. It is no exaggeration to say that the family is the creative engine of all the crucial values of a free and private society. So it follows that for any other social order to dominate, say any collectivist social order, the family must first be broken down. That is why Canadians, for that matter, all those living under welfare regimes must realize that if they have any desire to preserve the cherished life of a free society for their children and grandchildren, they first will have to recognize and then take up moral arms against all those who wish to destroy the family. Now, I don't think that is hyperbole. I think this is real. There are powerful, organized forces that are both natural and spiritual that are at war against God and His Word, and it's manifest especially at the level of the family. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18, about the nature of our struggle. That fight, that battle, that struggle is very, very real. And in 2 Corinthians 10, he tells us that we are pulling down false knowledge and arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Why is it important to pull down false knowledge and false ideas? Because ideas have consequences. Every idea has a consequence. Look at the 20th century, friends. When evolutionary ideas and Nietzschean ideas came together in a cocktail and in a man called Adolf Hitler, ideas had serious consequences. All ideas have consequences. If then, those who want to destroy the biblical family are going to be successful, which they won't be, by the way, the first thing that will happen in that any society where that is underway is that removal of there will be a removal of protection for the family, its sanctity, and the sphere of its authority. All protection for the family will evaporate. Okay, well, let's look at the situation today. The evaporation of legal protection for the family is a recent phenomena, a very recent phenomena, and it's the direct product of humanism. All societies in history, right through to the present, will protect their most basic and important institutions with serious sanctions. For example, in the modern Western world, the state is seen as the primary, most central, and basic institution for societal health, 
So Canada retained the death penalty for a number of offenses against who? The state. Including treason and mutiny. In fact, it wasn't until December 1998 that all reference to the death penalty was removed from Canadian law when treason and mutiny were removed as capital offenses. In a noteworthy collapse of protection for women and thereby the family, 1954 saw rape removed from the list of capital offenses here in Canada. It's interesting, isn't it? You will go to prison for longer for defrauding the CRA today than you will for raping someone. Now, the subject of this conference is not capital punishment, so I won't be dwelling on that issue, but uh, these facts are significant because all sanctions speak to the value of the precept. Do you follow? In other words, if, you, uh, if you're caught speeding on the way home doing 200 kmh in a 50 zone, and the officer pulls you over and says, don't do it again, would you? Off you go. And that was basically all that happened when you were caught speeding. There would be a lot more speeding, I think, in Canada. Where the penalty is severe, the precept is more highly valued. That's the point of looking at the last 50 years in Canadian history, of what we have actually said has value in terms of sanctions. In an attack upon the authority of the family, there was a removal of protection for parents of incorrigible delinquents when in 1956, the Parliamentary Committee re uh, recommended exempting juvenile offenders as well from all forms of capital punishment. So, in the United States, of course, there are several offenses still regarded as capital, including treason. And yet today, by comparison, the family from taxation to marriage and divorce law, to abortion and to rape, has lost almost all privilege and protection. In all of those areas. The family, in other words, is exposed. Now, the groups that are seeking the, and I'm not trying to scare you tonight, I'm just being very real and I think I'm being realistic, the groups seeking the abolition of the family and the growth of statism are national and international in their reach and in their goals, and the Marxist character of their objectives is very, very obvious. If you flick over a few pages of Marx's Communist Manifesto, for example, which had 10 new commandments, by the way, uh, we read some very interesting things about the family. In fact, uh, Theodore Dalrymple, uh, in a brilliant book that he has written uh, called Our Culture, What's Left of It, cites Karl Marx here, and I quote, on what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. The bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed correlation of parent and child, becomes all the more disgusting, the more by the action of modern industry. The bourgeois sees in his wife a mere instrument of production. Are bourgeois not content with having their wives and daughters of the proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives? 
Bourgeois marriage is in reality a system of wives in common, and thus at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is that they desire to introduce in substitution for the hypocritically concealed an openly legalized community of women. Karl Marx. Karl Marx hated the family. Now, you think, well, Karl Marx is old news, Joe. Why are we talking about Karl Marx? No, he isn't. The chattering intellectual classes, even in the Christian universities today and colleges, are still addicted to Karl Marx in one form or another. In modern missiology, they are addicted to forms of Marxist thought. Dalrymple comments on this. He says, quote, there is no mistaking the hatred and rage of these words. Marx savagely characterized, uh, 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 demonized the family and caricatured it because he wanted to destroy it. And it was all clad in the guise of love for humanity. His love for the proletariat, for the working man, for the ordinary worker. And isn't it actually hatred that's dressed up as love today in modern politics? The synthetic rage in the guise of love for mankind is the real hypocrisy. Marx himself lived a bourgeois existence, and he had a vision for replacing the family unit that required the seizure and overthrow of its capital, property, and private character, and, an, and a legalized free community of women for sexual relations. In other words, what he wanted was the total dissolution of the legal character of marriage. Society should be a total free-for-all. Marx was a parent who intellectually sought the abolition of the family as a social fact. Two of his daughters, Laura and Eleanor, committed suicide, in part due to his perpetual interference in their lives. This is what the historian Richard Weikart says about both Marx and Engels, and I quote, be patient with these quotes, my friends. Both Marx and Engels accepted that a period of sexual promiscuity without families existed in the earliest period of human history. According to this view, in primitive society, every man had sexual access to every woman and vice versa. There existed no sexual taboos or prohibitions of any kind, and even incest was acceptable. Engels once argued that this sexual community was a natural state inherited from the animal kingdom. With naturalistic explanations such as these, Marx and Engels had shifted to a position in which not the family, but the absence of the family, was the original and natural state of humanity. Now, when you come to an understanding that permutations of Marx are still taught in our universities today, that it is the dominant position of the intellectual class, you can begin to understand why, what ideas have consequences in our culture. We're just the hoi polloi to these people. We need to be told what's good for us. And they will tell us. Hoi polloi, that's another great English word to add to your vocab. The family's development and subsequent role in history for these Marxists, its role was only ever malevolent as far as they were concerned. It was within the 
family, for example, that they claimed private property and the division of labor was developed. Private property arose within the family since they claimed women and children become slaves of men. Now, you can hear modern feminism here, can't you? You can hear the echo of modern feminist voices in the words of 19th century social philosophers. For Marx and Engels, as for many intellectuals, the monogamous family is just a recent stage in biological and social evolution, and it should be replaced by something more natural, even more original. Let's go back to nature, in other words, they claim. Now, in keeping with this mood, and this is where it gets more interesting, because I can see some of you are dropping off. Just, Just take a breather a second. As far back... Let's get right into the 20th century now. As the 1940s, international bodies like UNESCO were promoting a uh, a rapidly anti-family agenda in the hope of breaking up first the family and then any sense of national identity in the pursuit of a new world order. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm using their own words. and I'm using the words of modern politicians. UNESCO stands for United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Something that uh, all our taxes are contributing to, one way or another. The framework policy for UNESCO was written by a British atheist and an evolutionary eugenicist. Now, you know that eugenics is the idea that you can breed humans for better stock, and so right through in Canada until 1974, until it was repealed in Alberta, we were sterilizing defectives in this country, who we considered feeble. Julian Huxley was a leading eugenicist, and he wrote the framework policy for UNESCO in about 1946. It was such hot property that the social planners felt the cultural waters were not sufficiently in their favor to make it public. It didn't become public until 1976. And after asserting the necessity of an evolutionary understanding of human nature and social order, this is what Huxley said, the unifying of traditions, that's the world's traditions, into a single common pool of experience, awareness and purpose, is the necessary prerequisite for further major progress in human evolution. Accordingly, although political unification in some sort of world government will be required for the definitive attainment of this stage, unification in things of the mind is not only necessary also, but it can pave the way for other types of unification. In other words, in a very grand roundabout way, how can we unite the thinking of the nation's children, the world's children? How can we reorient their thinking? For Huxley and UNESCO, the starting point of this is national classrooms. And in a UNESCO paper entitled, I quote, In the Classroom with Children Under 13 Years of Age, this is what the elite social planners wrote. And I quote, As long as the child breathes the poisoned air of nationalism, education, that is localism, education in world-mindedness 
can produce only rather precarious results. As we have pointed out, it is frequently the family which infects the child. The school should therefore use the means described earlier, which we haven't got time to read, to combat, Scott will deal with that in the next session, to combat family attitudes. End quote. The UN and its cultural, educational organization. Such statements bear out what G.K. Chesterton said in a chilling warning that, quote, the government did not have such power over us when it could send men to the stake as it does now when it can send them to the elementary school. G.K. Chesterton. The Catholic Christian. The government did not have such power over us when it could send men to the stake as it does now when it can send them to the elementary school. And this socialistic statism is the immediate offspring of Marx and Engels again in the Communist Manifesto who proposed the replacement of the private and home schools with compulsory public education, a very old idea that was there in Plato's Republic. Engels, in his draft of the manifesto, said this, and I quote, The raising of children together in national institutions and at national expense from that moment on in which they can dispense with the first motherly care should be practiced. In other words, the removal of parental control and influence you strip the family first of, it, of its economic abilities by abolishing inheritance, and then you will bring about the revolution. Communal care of children, they claimed, would also loosen inhibitions to sexual relationships since fear of pregnancy would be obviated. In other words, if the state's going to look after your kids, it doesn't matter what you do sexually, does it? Because they'll all be communally raised, brought up in national institutions, and so on and so forth. You can do what you like. The, the, the contemporary Canadian counterparts of these kind of ideas are the, this, in, this notion of universal uh, childcare from kindergarten on, get your children as young as possible in state institutions, and of course, the agenda that's pumped through our educational system and the promotion of abortion and so on and on and on, it provides for the sexual license that sinful man is after. So let's conclude by focusing on that, the sexual revolution. This broad statist agenda that we've been talking about with its offspring, sexual license, has been propagated now for seven decades in the West, and we're starting to see the results now, aren't we, in front of us. When I think about some of the guys that I went to school with, I shudder at the idea that they are bringing up children today. The family, for many humanist elites, as we've seen, is a source of infection and must be destroyed if this world order that they dream of is to be realized. As the UNESCO documents make clear, you have to eliminate the Christian idea of the family, and eventually national sovereignty. And that's exactly what's happening in Europe, as you know, with the European Union, without the vote of even the national electorates. In England, in Britain, where I'm from, we're still waiting for a referendum on the European Union that our politicians promised and never gave. But it's the whittling away of every form of localism towards this ever greater union. 
The vision can only be realized, though, if these children are taken from the influence of their parents and reprogrammed ideologically as equalitarians in the schools and by the ideologues in the university. And believe me, this is being taught in a university near you. This is an extract from an email I received from a student at York University in Toronto just a few days ago. I quote, the equity doctrine is what I've been heavily facing in my classes at York. A professor of mine last year told our class we were being judgmental imperialists because we thought that female genital mutilation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo should be stopped. She questioned why we thought we could impose our culture on people from the Democratic Republic and brought up this whole idea that no culture is wrong. Later, when I challenged some of the equity ideology which she was militantly imposing on us, I was marginalized as a white supremacist and perpetrator of colonial oppression. The scary part was that although I saw the absurdity in her teaching, the rest of my classmates had no framework from which to analyze what she taught, and so they were confused and found some of her arguments to be rather impressive. A lot of educators see students' minds as blank slates to be written on or sponges ready to soak up whatever they give them, and they are doing their best to promote the Marxist, Leninist ideals of an equalitarian world order. One of my TAs this year openly advocated, advocated to our class a society in which there is no money and no families, but all are equal, and my peers are eating it up. Very telling. Just around the corner. It's worth being reminded that there is no contradiction between statism and relativism. Relativism, relativism manifest socially is equalitarianism, the destruction of all distinctions. The goal of Marxism is the enforcement of a totalitarian equalizing order that leads finally to the disappearance of the state altogether in a utopia. So first you enforce this order, and then eventually by enforcing and applying the ideals, the state will just disappear. And all will live in this blissful promiscuity. But the academic reprogramming in this sort of delusional thinking is not enough. These things of the mind, these Huxley's things of the mind, have to be fleshed out in the concrete realm, remaking social relationships. In fact, Gardner is right to the point when he says this. All revolutionaries quickly see that to change the social order, you first have to change the sexual order. The traditional family, after all, is a sexual procreative entity that dictates much of our social reality. So by redefining the sexual nature of the family, we can redefine society itself. The long and the short of this strategy is that those who wish to engineer society in any direction must first break all the traditional moral and religious sexual allegiances. Sexuality must be progressively divested of all its spiritual, procreative, and family meanings, divested even of its connections with romantic love, and in its place must be put an increasing emphasis on raw sexuality. End quote. Well, what, if anything, today are we confronted with in our culture? Raw sexuality. Think about it for a moment. 
We've already seen the first implication of the assault on the family is to remove protections for it and let offenses against it go ignored. The second is to exploit the unprotected family in favor of this raw sexuality, whether it's the uh, radical libertarians, the radical feminists, the homosexual activists, the pornographers, the social engineers, they all turn their guns on the family. The purveyors of raw sexuality today are the pornographers. And our culture now is saturated, saturated in pornography. Things that my own grandparents would have not even imagined were possible in a civilized society are now deemed entertainment. And they make similar claims about human nature. The homosexual activists are equally uh, aggressive in their agenda. William Eskridge, for example, has stated that he hopes gay marriage, quote, will dethrone the traditional family based on blood relationships in favor of families we choose. The objective is the abolition of the family. You have to overturn the biblical concept of family and the social order it creates and replace it with this anarchic, raw sexuality as the free route for human society. This is deemed as, by the way, these pornographers, they believe themselves to be liberators, emancipators, people freeing culture. One social commentator has noted, he said, quote, pornography stimulates prostitution because it requires the irresponsible use of a person in terms of the imagination. Marital sex requires mutuality and is an aspect of a life of responsibility. The pornographic mind finds itself progressively impotent in a responsible context and progressively potent only in an irresponsible and lawless context in the realm where the imagination defies the responsibilities that the external world and other people impose. End quote. So what happens in a culture then? Well, the legalization and celebration of prostitution logically follows pornography and a pornographic culture. If it's the norm or normative, it becomes protected as a human right while the family is left exposed. September 2010, what's just happened? The Ontario Superior Court of Justice handed down a decision which followed an earlier decision sanctioning three parent families using the Charter of Rights to declare that prostitution and its accompanying activities are a legal right protected by Section 7 of the Charter. So the final three provisions forbidding certain aspects of prostitution in this country have now been struck down. Think about that for a moment. The family, that is someone's wife, daughter, or child, with laws that were supposed to protect vulnerable people in our society, in an, in an era of human sex trafficking and slavery in Canada, where vulnerable people are exploited and abused, pimps are roaming the, roaming the cities, children are exposed to abuse, we have enlightened provincial justices establishing, saying that living off and establishing the uh, off the proceeds of a brothel is a legal right. Now, if that isn't a sign of a culture gone mad, I don't know what is. But this is now Ontario. 
but it logically follows from pornography. We've seen also, of course, the removal of laws protecting marriage in terms of divorce. We have no-fault divorce today. The demolition of divorce law has been a tragedy because Protestant Christians divorce at rates the same as the rest of the world, and that leaves us with a credibility issue. Marriage and divorce are now no longer really seen as a uh, public matter, but only a private issue. But when you get married, who's present? The church, the family, and the state. All three covenantal institutions are represented in marriage. It was thought a public matter of public significance. Now, because of all the problems with divorce, churches ignore it. We don't want to upset people. We don't want to offend our congregations. We don't want to exercise church discipline on people violating the covenant and so on, misusing their spouses. No, no, no. We just keep our heads down. It's a private issue. And then we have abortion and the murder of the unborn. Pro-choice activist sustains, they believe, the alleged right to irresponsible sex by abortion. And they also say that they are autonomous, that is, their bodies are their own, so whatever's inside the body is viewed as property. A chilling reminder of what was claimed about stolen African slaves in the last century and the century before that. That another human being can simply be regarded as property. The feminist uses abortion to overturn the alleged patriarchy that marriage is said to entail, freeing her from male domination. The religious environmentalist says he's reducing the world's population and regulating carbon emissions and saving the planet by killing children. A more perverse kind of self-righteousness is very difficult to conceive of, is it? And for the humanist and atheistic ideologue, abortion is a useful tool in the struggle for total statism and the abolition of the family. Henry Morgenthaler, the Polish-born Canadian abortionist who served jail time for performing some 5,000 illegal abortions, was just given in our culture the highest civilian citation possible, the Order of Canada. The highest citation available to a civilian. I believe in Canada, the Order of Canada. He was motivated by his atheism. He was the first president and founder of the Humanist Association of Canada. He was flagrantly hostile to the family in both his murder of the unborn and he was a self-confessed serial adulterer. These social illustrations illustrate the point of the importance of this conference. End of depressing session. It gets better from here. Okay, this is the point. This is why, because a social and sexual revolution has taken place, a legal revolution has taken place, and the church is still playing catch-up in many parts and saying, well, why, is the, why, are we, why are justices legalizing prostitution? Why is there no, not even an abortion law you can abort a child up to term in this country. Does that strike any Christian as wrong? There is a hostility to life itself. It's the thinking and the way of death. What are we called to in that context, friends? We're called to manifest, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. To live it 
in every aspect of our lives so that we are so deeply impacted by biblical faith that our families and by extension our churches are transformed and prepared to live faithfully. It's not a time to succumb to saying, great conference, everything's going to hell in a handbasket in Canada, clearly. Let's just pray for the rapture. Well, then things will just get worse. Just gets worse. Our calling is to be about the work of the kingdom of God so that we take responsibility for what is happening and not succumb to despair. Through the church, we're told, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to all authority, says Paul. In one of his frequent financial crises due to uh, indolence, basically, and overspending, Karl Marx, the father of legitimate and illegitimate children, confided to his friend Engels, blessed is he who has no family, end quote. Scripture says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord, and that children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Karl Marx versus the Bible. No, our families are a blessing, and the fact that Two of Marx's daughters, in fact, the relationships of his family ended in tragedy. His daughter, Eleanor, was in a 14-year relationship, adulterous relationship with an adulterous man who was uh, estranged from his wife but not, not legally divorced. He was unfaithful, and on hearing the news, she killed herself. You see, freedom from faithful marriage does not lead to universal bliss. It leads to the absolute opposite. And friends, there is nothing new under the sun. If we think for a minute that, hang on, Joe, yes, this is all good, but our times, there have never been times like this. They're worse than ever before. I think that's wrong. I think the early church were living in times worse than this. You're not being thrown into the Colosseum, are you? You're not having to shed your own blood for the sake of the gospel. Let me end, and I promise this is the end, with a final quotation from a very important social commentator from the last century. He said this, I have lived a few decades enough to have seen the same things advocated in every one of them. I've read enough books to know that powerful movements in the United States championed all those things, all these immoralities, in the last century, and in Europe, back through the centuries. I recall reading books and articles saying the same thing many years ago. The basic problem, however, which all these writers forget, is that in every age, sin has always been popular with sinners. In every age, sinners act as though they newly discovered sin, and that it is some kind of gold mine to make mankind free and happy. Adam and Eve also thought that it was a great cure-all which would make them gods and enable them to determine right from wrong. Adam and Eve found that their new freedom was in reality slavery. Sin is simply the old slavery. Sin has always had its press agents to promote it and to spread the idea that sin is the new way of life. In reality, the God-ordained family has prospered in every generation 
I do not see virginity or chastity or marriage as things that will disappear, but rather they will endure and triumph. Sinners since Adam and Eve have thought that their way means a new world. They will find instead that it destroys the only real world there is and destroys them also. We have the answer in the gospel of the kingdom, the hope of the gospel, and this hope does not disappoint. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.